You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. I'm so excited to jump into our, our last sermon for the month of February, and we are focusing this year on the next level. Now, Ken Reed, our incredible graphics guy, uh, did an awesome job with this, and we have stairs here. And the way that I want us to think about this is maybe taking another step. All of us uh, need to take another step in our walk with God, in our relationship with Jesus. And that's going to look different for all of us. Um, all of us are at a different place of our journey. And what I want to encourage us to do today is just take another step. And the way that we take another step is through the knowledge of God. It's through understanding His Word. And that's what we're focusing on this month, growing with God's vision to the next level. Now last week, Pastor Capace preached on the seven supplements, seven things that we're adding to our faith. And next Sunday, Pastor Capace is going to start the month of March out with the idea of serving with excellence. So we're talking about knowledge this month, and next month we're talking about service. And what I'd like to do today is just build a bridge. How does our knowledge of God affect our service? By the way, uh, this year we have started with our little lighthouses uh, once a month going out into the community and serving. How many of you are part of a lighthouse and you've been a part of a service day? Would you raise your hand? Awesome. Um, if you're not part of one of our small groups, come tackle me after the service and I'll get you, I'll get you involved in one. Uh, but I'm really excited about our lighthouses. And so we're going to be talking about service next month. And this week, we're going to try to just build a bridge. And I have been privileged to preach from Second Peter. Now, why is it Second Peter? Well, this is the second letter that Peter wrote to all of the people in Galatia, this region of uh, people who were Gentiles, who were non-Jews. And Peter is writing this to them. And as we're going to find out here in a second, these are Peter's last words. Okay, so let's jump into a little of the backstory here before we open up the Word of God. Peter is at the end of his life. The charismatic, extroverted, talkative disciple is facing death at the hands of Nero, the emperor of Rome. How many of you all are extroverted in the room today? Would you raise your hand? All right. I will not ask if you're introverted because you wouldn't raise your hand anyway. Uh, But... Uh, Peter was a huge extrovert. You all remember Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration? Just, he like couldn't keep his mouth shut. Just speaking up and saying stupid things that he's not supposed to say. That's, that's this guy. That's Peter. And now he's at the end of his life and he's facing death. And he's facing death for his insurrection as one of those Jesus followers. And so Peter's death, which Jesus predicted in John 19, by the way, it has arrived. And Peter wants to go out with no feelings left on his sleeves. Peter has been given the task of bringing the good news that Jesus is now king to those across the empire that are not Israelites. But in surprising fashion, he takes the titles that God gave the Israelites in Exodus 19 and drops them on these Gentiles who have joined the people of God. They too are now the chosen people, the royal priests, the holy nation, and God's very own possession. This is because through Jesus, sin, death, and the devil have been defeated, and now all people are being welcomed under his rule. The ecclesia of Jesus. We've been talking about the church as the ecclesia of Jesus. The ecclesia of Jesus has gone through a lot, but more dangerous than the enemy outside, and who was the enemy outside? 
It was the Roman Empire. It was persecution at the hands of Nero. But more dangerous than the enemy outside of the church was the enemy inside the church, which Peter is referring to as false prophets. And we can tell it was Peter's last words because he pulls no punches. In what we might call today a mic drop moment, Peter tells Satan to get behind him as he boldly attacks the enemy which has creeped into the body of Christ. Peter sees the church as the people of God whom God is forming to be his soldiers to push back the kingdom of darkness. And the war that Peter sees is not one to be fought with weapons, but it's a war in the mind. It's a war of truth versus lies. And so in just the first eight verses of Peter's letter here, he alludes to knowledge four times. He says that those that are not part of God's elect are nearsighted and blind. That is, they can't see. Because to see, we must have the same mind which was in Christ Jesus. Peter knew that as we share in God's divine nature, we will see that the enemy has strategies. And we'll see them more clearly and we won't be duped into his game. Do I have any coaches in the room this morning? Four or five of you. Now, those of you that are coaches, you know that a good coach doesn't just have a game plan, but a good coach is able to see the game plan of the other coach and not play into his game. So a good coach is going to make adjustments at halftime or in the middle of the game as to not be duped into the other coach's luring enticement. So maybe this morning we could look at Peter as our coach. And as Pastor Capace already alluded to this month, Peter throws quite a few sports references into this letter. The first one is in verse 5, where Peter says, Strain every nerve to supplement your faith. I love this. And so, y'all know me, I like to dig into history a little bit. And so I went digging the last couple weeks as I prepared this sermon. And I wanted to know what kind of exercises, what kind of weightlifting did they do back in this time? Well, as many of you know, the Roman Empire had been Hellenized, which just means it had been greatly influenced by the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire was known for their weightlifting. I can't help but looking at Darian down here on the second row, not to call you out, but... Darian, this is going to blow your mind. Back in this day, they would lift huge rocks over their head. Look at, first of all, let's look at a quote from a famous philosopher, Socrates. No citizen has a right to be an amateur in the matter of physical training. What a disgrace it is for a man to grow old without ever seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable. Now I want you to look at this huge stone. The stone of Baban. Has anybody ever heard of this stone? Raise your hand. Okay, no one. Me either. This is the first for me, okay? The, the stone actually reads in, in Greek, Baibon, son of Phola, has lifted me overhead with one hand. Now, those of you that work out, you know that deadlifting 316 pounds is quite a feat. A feat that yours truly cannot do. This dude didn't deadlift 316 pounds. He did it with one hand over his head. Now, by the way, back in this day, they were not getting ripped out so that they could wear a tight shirt and look attractive on Instagram. Um, they were actually, they were literally going and slaying like giants and like killing people with their strength. And this, I think, is what Peter wants us to see when he says strain every nerve to add to your faith. 
Pastor Capese last week mentioned that these seven things we must cultivate helps us to represent God. But when we think of grimacing, when we think of straining every nerve, and when we think of holiness or godliness in the same sentence, some of us might be triggered. We might think, oh, I have to live a holy, godly life. I can't have any fun. I wish I could, I wish I could do all those things that my friends are doing, but I'm a Christian. I have to be holy. I can't have fun. I love what N.T. Wright says in his commentary on 2 Peter. Look at this. The big picture of Peter's letter is what God wants what? All right, let's try that again. The big picture of Peter's letter is what God wants for his people. All too often, people think that religion or even Christian faith is about what God wants from us. Good behavior, renunciation of things we like, a gritted teeth morality of forcing ourselves to behave unnaturally. Now be honest with yourself. Don't you sometimes view these attributes of God as extra credit for super Christians? And then when we do these seven things, it's like, I'm, I got extra credit points. I'm one of the super Christians. This is so often how we view God's gifts that he's giving us, these seven attributes. But God wants to share his nature with us. The heart of God is to share what he possesses. He is not motivated by obtaining more of this, that, or the other. He already is over all and in all and living through all, Paul says. And this is not some pantheistic view of God as Mother Nature, but an understanding that he sustains every molecule. God is calling and choosing a people to be his agents in the world, to represent him in the darkness by living cross-shaped lives in a world of empire. And for an example of this, we need look no further than Peter. After watching Jesus ascend to his place of power at God's right hand, he had the confidence to lay his life down. Just like his Lord and Savior did for the kingdom of God to advance. The guy who years earlier had pulled out his sword and chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest when it was time to go to battle had learned that the battle in the kingdom of Jesus looks a little different. It's not that Peter had become a fluffy pacifist teddy bear. Just read this letter. But he had learned how the victory is won in God's kingdom. Now, I've been given the task this morning of taking three verses and unpacking them for us. But what I'd like to do first is just read through the first ten verses of Peter's letter. Now, after I'm done reading, we're going to put a couple of them on the screen what I'd, like you, what I'd like to ask you all to do right now is just to sit there and relax and let me read. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, 
perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three or these two verses here at the end. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Now, what does it mean to confirm our calling and what does it mean to confirm our election? And then Peter goes on and he says, For if you do these things, what things? Anybody? What things is he talking about? The seven things. The seven supplements that Pastor Capace preached on last week. If you do these things, you will never stumble. Can everybody help me out and say, huh? That was a terrible huh. Um... Is Peter saying that if we do the seven things that we're never going to sin? Oh, and by the way, if you do these seven things, you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. Is Peter saying that in order to do, in order to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom, we have to do these seven things? Hmm. What's going on here? I think for us to understand this text, we actually have to ask a couple of questions of the text. And so this morning, I want to ask two questions, and I want to try to make an attempt to answer these two questions. And the first question is, what does it mean to confirm our calling and election? The second question is, is our welcome into the eternal kingdom contingent on our ability to do these seven things. Now let's start off with our first question. What does it mean to confirm our calling and our election? I am convinced that we need to recover this word in our Christian faith. How many of you play a musical instrument? Would you raise your hand? How many of you play an instrument? I grew up playing the trumpet in middle school. And we would memorize songs to play in a marching band. And so I have all of these patriotic songs memorized on the trumpet. Star Spangled Banner, God Bless America, Battle Hymn of the Republic. And unfortunately, I learned how to play the trumpet and learned to read music at the same time. So oftentimes in my bedroom... God bless my parents who had to listen to me practice. Um, I would learn a song the wrong way. And I would be in the band room practicing with all of my other friends. First chair, thank you. And all of a sudden, I would play a line and they would play a different line. And we would all stare at each other because I had learned the song the wrong way. One of the hardest things in the world to do is learn music. But the harder thing is to learn a song that you learned wrong the first time. It's very difficult once we have a tune in our head to hear the right tune. And what I want to suggest to us this morning is that this word election is a word that for many hundreds of years, especially in some sects of Christianity, we have heard it a certain way. And so when we go into the Bible and read and we come across the word election, we're confused. But I would like to make a proposal to us this morning that might help some of Scripture make more sense 
Most notably, those portions of Scripture that have this word elect. Now, many would go back to John Calvin when we talk about election. In fact, John Calvin has almost been forgotten for so much of his writings. And I must say, even though I'm not a Calvinist, I must say that many of John Calvin's writings are actually, I I like them, they're really good. But I, as you'll see in a few seconds, I don't agree with John Calvin and his view on election. Look at what John Calvin wrote in his Institutes. He says, God arranges all things by his sovereign counsel in such a way that individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death and are to glorify God by their destruction. What Calvin is saying is that God is up in heaven and he's picking winners and losers. Now, some Calvinists would say, no, he actually doesn't pick the losers. He only picks the winners. Either way, the point is, from a Calvinist mindset, that God is choosing who is saved and who is not saved. And by the way, if you didn't get picked for the team, you're going to be destroyed and God is somehow going to receive glory as you're torturously burning. This is what John Calvin believed But I actually think if we're going to get to the root of the word elect or election, we have to go all the way back to the fourth century and look at John Calvin's teacher. John Calvin's teacher was a man named Augustine. And I've had a whole bunch of help as I've been studying this week. Calvin believed that God's sovereignty meant that God determined all things, including the decisions of humans. He believed that humans had free will when they were created, but after sin, they lost their free will. Now, there is a host of problems with that. But what I want to focus in on today is going back to Augustine. Augustine was a man who was... Yeah, go back to that picture. Sorry, I I, uh, got out of order here. Um, This is the book I want to credit Ken Wilson for everything I'm about to tell you. So if I'm wrong, he's wrong. Uh, Ken Ken Wilson is a brilliant man who did his entire doctoral dissertation on election in the early church, and he studied all 52 church fathers from the New Testament writings to Augustine in regards to election. So if you really want to geek out and you like to read, buy this book. I highly recommend it. So you can go to the next slide now, and we're going to look at Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 AD. Now, I'm going to warn you, if you don't like history, set your stopwatch Tune me out for seven minutes, and then I'll cue you back in on when to come back in the sermon. Real quick, we need to go down history. We need to go down memory lane and look at Augustine. Augustine was a, 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 um, he was a Maccabean. He was a Maccabee. And Maccabees were heavily influenced by Gnosticism and Stoicism, all which stemmed from Aristotle and Plato. But what I want to focus on is what Aristotle believed about fatalism. Aristotle believed that everything that is, is because of what happened before it. He called this fate. And so if we think of dominoes that are falling, Aristotle would say, and by the way, Aristotle did believe in a higher power. He believed, and so did Plato. Plato called it the one They believed in a higher power, and they believed that this higher power pushed the first domino. Now, how many of you have ever lined up dominoes and pushed them down? Have you ever done that before? Um, If you're like me, your four kids scream and fight over who's going to get to push it. And uh, uh, if you go forward a little bit in history, you're going to find a Catholic theologian and scholar named named Thomas Aquinas. And uh, Aquinas came along and said that, um, there had to be someone who f- pushed the first domino. And, and Aquinas called this the unmoved mover. And philosophically, it's impossible that we could just keep going back in time and the dominoes are always falling. There had to be someone who pushed the first domino. And Plato and Aristotle say that first person was the one, it was a higher power, it was a force, a being. But here's the catch. Aristotle believed that all of the dominoes were falling and there's nothing you can do to get in and stop it. This is called fatalism or fate. Now when we go back and study 
the church fathers, which is what Ken Wilson has done. We find that there are, 52, there are writings from 52 church fathers from the last writing of the New Testament to Augustine's writing. There's 52 men in between. And when we go and look, as he has laid out in this book that I'm reading, as we lay out all of their writings, we find that none of them, zero, not a zilch, believed in fatalism. They all believed that you and I actually do have free will. Let's look at a couple of uh, the early church fathers. So Justin Martyr said, Neither do we maintain that it is by fate that men do what they do, nor suffer what they suffer. Rather, we maintain that each man acts rightly or sins by his free choice. Let's go to Tertullian. Tertullian says, I find then that man was constituted free will by God. He was master of his own will and power. For a law would not be imposed upon one who did not have it in his power to render that obedience which it was due which is due to the law. Nor again would the penalty of death be threatened against sin if a contempt of the law were impossible to man in the liberty of his will. Man is free with a will either for obedience or to resistance. Okay, let me translate that quickly for you. Basically what Tertullian is saying is if God gives someone a law, then they have the ability to accept it or refuse it. They have the ability to obey it or disobey it. And by the way, the people who disobey the law, they can't say, well, God made me disobey it because of fatalism. No, you have the choice to choose. You have the choice to obey it or refuse it. And by the way, if God is going to determine that certain people are going to disobey, what kind of a God is then going to punish them for disobeying the law that they didn't have the ability to obey? Do you see where I'm going with this? Aristotle and Plato's fatalism doesn't fit into the Bible. But what Ken Wilson is attempting to do is to prove that that is precisely what Augustine has done. Augustine grew up in the home of a Christian mother and a pagan father. And as a, Mac, as a, as a manichee, he subscribed to fatalism. But then Augustine became a Christian, and it's incredible what Ken Wilson has done in this book to unpack some of Augustine's early writings in which Augustine himself rejected Aristotle's fatalism and accepted free will up until the famous Pelagian debate. I'm almost done with the history lesson. Pelagius was a guy in the early church we don't really know what he believed because when he was killed for being a heretic, all of his writings were burned. But what they say he believed is something that many people call synergism. It's the idea that uh, salvation is uh, God, but it's you and me too. It's kind of like we're, we're, we got to help God out a little bit. You know, God was, God was doing what God does, which is to save us from sin and death and the devil. But we got to come and help God out a little bit. And so Augustine sees this going on in the church from Pelagius, and Augustine goes back to his roots as a Christian this time and holds on to this idea of fatalism. And welcome to the church, we have determinism. My proposal to us this morning, the idea that election is about salvation and is God's choice in who will be saved, is a misunderstanding of election. And this misunderstanding started with Augustine in the fourth century. I am convinced that election is not about salvation. Now the caveat here is that even salvation, God intended let me say it like this. God intended to save his elect, but he did not elect them for the purpose of salvation. And to understand this whole conundrum or this whole riddle, we simply have to ask one question. What did God elect them for? Okay, so Peter says that we have to confirm our election. Elected for what? 
in our modern world today, we elect presidents and governors and politicians. That's the only time we elect. What does that mean? We choose. We vote. And so if God is electing, well, what is he electing us for? I think if we just go back to the beginning of the story, we'll have that answered. And the beginning of the story is in Genesis 12, when God chose Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who uh, treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. As Tim Mackey says, God chose one from among many so that through the one, God can bless the many. God is choosing for himself a people that will represent him to the world. It was not as if God loved the Israelites and hated the world. No, we know that's not true, for God so loved the world. But when Abraham's descendants obeyed God's instructions, they would be so blessed that the other nations would want in on the party. Think about it like this. The whole world are the enemies of God. They're refusing to follow their creator and they're following the devil and the kingdom of darkness. And to win them back, God chooses one and creates a nation from this one and he's going to bless the socks off of this one so much so that the rest of the world is going to be jealous and want to come into the party. This is what election is. Now we must understand that God's choosing of Israel was to restore humanity to its role as image bearers, which God created to fill the earth. The expansion of Eden was the mission of God. Sin was that which brought the ordered world into chaos. And Jesus was the one who launched new creation, which brought order again out of chaos. So, the salvation that God intended for his people was just as much what he was saving them for as it was what he was saving them from. Here's my summary thought. What did God choose or elect Israel for? For representation. Now, I don't have time in this sermon to go further with this, but when Israel fails to represent God to the world, what happens is they actually go and chase after the world's gods, and they take the name of Yahweh and they drag it through the mud. So what we need is the name of Yahweh to be the honor that is due to his name. We need it to be restored. So we're waiting for a Jew. We're waiting for an Israelite who is going to come and is going to represent Yahweh the right way. Ta-da! Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus, by the way, he was a Jew, perfectly represented God to the world. And when he is lifted up, He draws all men to him. It's as if when Jesus was raised up on the cross, the lie from the devil that God could not be trusted and that God doesn't love you crumbled. Now we know that God really does love us because he died for the sins of the world. This is why, by the way, the early church fathers viewed election through the lens of Jesus, the chosen one, the one who perfectly represented God to the world. All right, let's go to the second question. Well, first of all, before I do that, can we all take a breath together? How many of you, that was new information for you? Would you raise your hand? Okay, most of you. Um, Let let me just say this before I keep going. Um, If you have more questions about this, come talk to me. Like, let's do coffee. That's what I'm here for. Um, if, if you disagree with me, that's okay. Like, you're wrong, but you can disagree with me. Um, uh, no, no, all, all kidding aside, all kidding aside, 
um, let, let me say this with all clarity and from the bottom of my heart. I want to I say this before I go on to the next question. Good people disagree on this. Okay? Good people disagree on this. So if you have more questions, uh, if you really want to get nerdy, buy that book and you'll love it. All right, let's go to the second question. Is our welcome into the eternal kingdom contingent on our ability to do these seven things? Now let's put the text back up there. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to show yourself and the world around you that you are God's representatives. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I think once we understand what election is, it helps this whole text to make a little more sense. But there's another hurdle that we need to overcome, and we need to overcome it by asking another question. When and how would they enter into the kingdom? When and how would they enter into the eternal kingdom? If we fail to understand the kingdom of God and when it was launched, we will assume this verse is talking about life after death, and therefore we will assume that we gain entrance by merit or performance. But my question for us this morning is when did or does the kingdom of God begin? Let me pause here and ask everyone this question again, and I want you just to answer it in your mind. When did or when does the kingdom of God begin? When Jesus came to earth, the gospel that he preached was the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is, it's near. And then he said the kingdom of God is, it's at hand. When God gave humans free will in the garden, they were able to choose who they would give authority to, and they gave it to the devil. So the devil was the ruler of the world. Jesus came back to gain back human allegiance, which was lost in the garden. And when Jesus was lifted up, it showed the world God did love them and that the devil was a liar. So Jesus was given authority on heaven and earth after the devil was defeated. So we can think of the cross as Jesus' enthronement. And when you and I believe upon Jesus as King and Savior, we give him authority in our lives and the, and, and the Satan is removed from office. The way that you and I enter into the kingdom of God is by bowing our knee to King Jesus. And the moment you do that, the ruler of you and me, the one we've given authority, the devil, he loses his seat of power. The kingdom of God was launched when Jesus rose from the grave and sin and death were defeated. So the cross of Jesus is his enthronement The resurrection is when the new kingdom and the new creation are launched. And when Jesus ascends to his seat of power at God's right hand, he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. Jesus has the authority. He's king. And the moment you and I surrender to him, we enter the kingdom. So whatever Peter's talking about right here, it's not how you get to heaven. You enter the kingdom when you bow the knee to King Jesus. This is where we really need to understand the concept of already but not yet. And this is a concept that I've presented to you a couple of times as I've preached here. Already, but not yet. Jesus is the king. Already, but not yet. Death has been defeated. Already, but not yet. The enemy has been dealt a blow. And he's a loser. Already, but not yet. You see, we live in the age to come. 
And we also live in the age of sin and death. It's what many Bible scholars call the overlap of the two ages. And so another way to think about it, instead of thinking about it as two ages, is we can think about it as two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of God, and you have the kingdom of darkness, and the two kingdoms are going parallel, right beside each other, and they're headed towards a crash collision. And Paul says in Colossians, for you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God, God's dear son, who purchased your freedom and forgave our sins. Sorry, all of you in my Bible class, I messed up our memory verse. So the kingdom has launched, but the enemy is still at large, and we participate in the dismantling of the enemy. Did you hear that? That is what spiritual warfare is, by the way. Every time you bow the knee to King Jesus, Satan lost another member of his kingdom. We push the kingdom of darkness back as we are the people which represent Jesus. So what does Peter mean when he says we receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom? How do they enter the kingdom? Well, let's, let's talk about how they enter the kingdom. We already said that we enter the kingdom by faith, but there's a little more to the story. So I was studying this this week, and I needed some help. <laughs> um, I always need help. By the way, nothing I'm bringing to you today is my own. Um, so I always need help, but I, I needed a little extra help. And so I called a friend of mine. His name is Matt Musakis. And Matt Musakis, I will affectionately call him to you. He's the Greek freak. Um, not the basketball player uh, from Milwaukee, but Matt Musakis is a Greek scholar. And I'm the, I have the privilege of knowing him. He's my friend. And I called Matt and I said, Matt, I need some help. I said, I'm trying to unpack these two verses. And I said, what I'm seeing in my understanding of the kingdom of God, is this already, but not yet. I say, could you kind of help me with some of the tenses of the verbs? And like, am I reading this right? And Matt said, yes, Scott, that's exactly, you're reading it right. He said, it's already, but not yet. So, so we already have entered the kingdom of God, and we are entering the kingdom of God. But he said, Scott, there's actually a metaphor going on here that we're going to miss in our, our English translations. And so I was like, okay, share with me. So how many of you all would like me to share it with you? Okay, awesome. In order for us to learn this metaphor, we've got to learn three Greek words. Say ready if you're ready. Okay, let's do it. Uh, word number one, do. So do these seven things, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. You will not stumble, right? Okay, the word do can also mean practice. All right, now hold on to that thought. Let's go to the second word. The word for stumble can also mean trip. Okay, hold on to that word. Let's go to the third word. The word receive, epikoriago, epikorigigo, epikorigigo. Matt is going to watch this later and he's going to laugh at me. I'm sorry, I don't read Greek. Um, it means to receive, to support, but it can also mean to dance. It's where we get our English word choreograph. And Matt said to me, Scott, I think what Peter is doing here is he's talking about a dance. And to dance, you have to practice. And if you practice, you won't trip. And then Matt said to me, I think what he's talking about here, Scott, is the dance of the three graces. You know, Scott. And I was like, no, I don't know. Uh, has anybody in here ever heard of the dance of the three graces? All right, new information for me too. Let's jump in. So there's three sisters, and each one of them, their name is Grace. Grace number one, Grace number two, Grace number three. And Seneca, who is a Roman historian from this day, he says that why do the sisters hand-in-hand -hand dance in a ring which returns upon itself? For the reason that a gift passing in its course from hand to hand returns nevertheless to the giver. The beauty of the whole is destroyed if the course is anywhere broken. And it has most beauty if it is continuous and maintains an uninterrupted succession. So the ancient people believed in the three graces. And the word grace 
in Greek is charis, where we get our word charity from. It is a way to explain gift giving. And uh, it's not a religious word. Charis is not, not a religious word. Um, and so anytime we talk about charis, we're talking about giving a gift. And you have three graces. You have the giver, and the giver gives the gift. And then you have the receiver who receives the gift. But anytime a giver gave a gift, he always gave it to initiate a relationship. So he would give the gift, but the person receiving it is going to have to receive it with thanksgiving. And then after they receive it with thanksgiving, they honor the one who gave them the gift. And if at any point the gift stops being received with thanks and stops returning honor to the one that gave it, the cycle's broken. Matt says that this is exactly what Peter is thinking of, which is that God himself is sharing his divine nature with us, and we are to receive it with grace, and then as we practice these seven things, we are honoring him And we dance into the eternal kingdom. These seven supplements are not extra credit for super Christians. They are how we share in God's divine nature to bring the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven or to advance the eternal kingdom. These seven things are the choreograph advancing the kingdom. It is a present entering the kingdom as we wait for the consummation. The dance of grace is now and not yet. So, church family, to steal from Paul to pay Peter, keep in step with the Spirit. When we think of these seven things, we definitely need to think of straining every nerve because sometimes it's really hard. But just make sure as you're straining, you remember it's a dance because the giver of life has given himself to you and he wants a relationship. But if you don't receive the gift with thanksgiving, it's broken. If you receive the gift, but you don't pay homage or honor back to the gift giver, it's broken. All right, here's Scott's paraphrase. Are you ready? Therefore, my brothers and sisters in Jesus, work diligently to prove to yourselves and the world around you that you are Jesus' representatives. For as you practice these seven divine qualities, You will be in step with the Spirit instead of tripping up. And you will dance together with our Lord and Savior, Jesus the King, advancing the eternal kingdom. I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, many of us have received the gift, but not with thanksgiving. Or... We received the gift, but we failed to realize the purpose of the gift was relationship. So we view the exchange that took place at the cross as something God did and something I get. And we go waltzing off around Arkansas saying, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. And there's no participation in the kingdom. I think if we can understand the dance of grace, will understand that what God is giving us is his very essence, his nature, himself. And he's wanting us to be conformed into the image of his son so that we will be the elect of God chosen to represent him into the world, inviting them into the dance.
when we share our faith with other people, does it look like us sharing religion or does it look like us inviting them into the dance? We're going to do something a little different this morning. Jordan is going to lead us in a dance. And what we'd like to do as a a church body this morning, and if this is a little weird to you, then just don't do it. But I'd like us in a moment just to close our eyes and open our hands. And for a couple of minutes, I want us to just receive the gift of God, which is himself, the love and mercy of God. I want us to receive it, and I want us to be thankful for it, very similar to the way we would do at a Lord's Supper. And then after a couple minutes has passed by, Jordan is going to speak up and he's going to lead us into giving honor to the gift giver. And this song, Jordan has picked it out for this occasion. It's talking about, I'm sorry. Because I've wanted the, the blessings, but I haven't wanted the blesser. I want want the healing. I don't want the healer. The presence of God is the gift. And as you and I practice his nature, we become the people of God. And our relationship with God grows and grows and grows. Would you close your eyes with me for a couple of minutes, church family?